Welcome to The V-Hive, a platform focused on women's intimate health. With weekly episodes from the field's top practitioners, we discuss all of the things you've always thought about but never wanted to talk about. On this podcast, we are making the highest quality information on the most beloved part of your body accessible, understandable, and implementable. I'm your host, Hannah Matluck, and I started this platform as a result of my own experience with chronic pelvic pain. Throughout the years I spent healing my body, I became overwhelmingly interested and passionate about these topics and have made it my mission to create awareness and education on the complexities of the female body. The Beehive now has a Patreon. For those of you who are not familiar with Patreon, it's a subscription-style platform for people to support content creators. Those who subscribe to the VHive's Patreon will receive access to additional content and benefits such as monthly eBooks, bonus episodes, exclusive events, and much more. Supporting the VHive through Patreon will allow this podcast to continue to grow. With your help, we will be able to produce more and more valuable and exciting content. At the moment, this is the VHive's main source of funding. Any level you can subscribe to would be so greatly appreciated. You can access the VHive's Patreon by going to www.patreon.com backslash the VHive. Last but not least, I want to thank Nunamed for supporting this week's episode. Nunamed is an herbal tea used to prevent and treat urinary tract infections. It's an incredible product that's proven to be 80% as effective as antibiotics. I'm a huge fan of Nunamed, I drink it way too often, and I deeply believe that this is a product that so many of you could benefit from. When you place an order through the Nunamed website, be sure to use the code THEVHIVE at checkout for 20% off your first order. That's Nunamed spelled N-U-N-A-M-E-D.com. Today I'm here with Dr. Jason Seiferman. He is board certified in physical medicine and rehabilitation and is the founder of Manhattan Pain Medicine. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. So tell us how you got into this field. One thing that drew me to physiatry, Mm -hmm. it's a specialty that focuses on physical function. It's all about quality of life and restoring function. Uh, you know, you may see on TV someone was in an accident and they got in a coma and magically they come back to life and resume it how it was and everything's normal. Real life isn't like that. Right. Um, when there's a fracture, when there's a car injury, when there's a stroke or spinal cord injury, there's a recovery process and it's not easy and it affects every aspect of your life. It, it affects your family, it affects your work, it affects how you see yourself as a person and of course then there's the body, right? Mm-hmm. And recovery retraining going through that process it takes a lot of work and a lot of it is addressing mechanical issues with the body Uh, and then there's also the medical portion and i enjoy that uh, because we're, we're addressing the person as a whole we're looking at quality of life and goals and dreams and desires and relationships and it's not just like you're treating one organ system so you get very involved. You get to know your patients very well, and it's a process. So it's not just sort of an in and out. There's not a quick surgery, and then you're back to normal, and everything's fine. Um, it's a process. So it's really working with your patient, getting to know them, and, and addressing all those needs. 
Uh, I took this a step further and did a fellowship in interventional pain medicine, which allows me to really focus in on the pain aspect, uh, which is inevitable with any injury. Or even if there's not an actual trauma or injury, if there's something like cancer or migraines or endometriosis, other conditions that will cause pain. Uh, anything that causes pain changes how you use your body. Whether you realize it or not, you'll change the way you move, you'll change the way you feel about yourself, the way you present yourself, uh, and your experience of life will be colored because of pain. So we really get to translate everything that, that we learn in physiatry into pain management. And on the medical side of it, I can offer medication management, injection treatments, we guide physical therapies, we work with pain psychologists to work with the adaptation to the current state and help you work through it. And uh, there's a lot of alternative approaches we incorporate as well. Mm -hmm. And what are the main chronic pain conditions that you treat in your practice? So I treat anything that hurts. Right. Uh, if I focused in, probably migraines, mm -hmm. neck pain, back pain. Um, those are the more common. I have some chronic post-operative pain patients. So if you had a surgery and you expected everything to go well, and I'm sorry it didn't, mm -hmm. um, it can be challenging. And, and so we, we work with all of these things and we, we try and find uh, a toolbox of treatments that will get you better. Mm -hmm. uh, because as you may know, things wax and wane over time with chronic pain. Like you may have one flavor of pain one day and a different flavor the next day, right. and you'll need different things for those different pains. So uh, we really try and work to find out a bunch of tools that work for you so that you can use those when you need them. So if we were to talk specifically, well, we will talk specifically about pelvic pain, how common is this in your practice? And have you seen progressively like more and more women and men coming to you with pelvic pain? So it's definitely been a growing part of my practice. Mm -hmm. I, I see quite a bit of it now. And again, like other, even though it's not a direct physical trauma, but very much like a physical trauma, it affects many organ systems. It affects right. many parts of the patient's life. Uh, and there's a lot for us to work on. Mm -hmm. Well, there's a few treatments I want to talk about in specifically that you, in specific that you use. But if you were to give us an overview of the treatments that you have in your in your toolbox what are they like what do you do if someone were to come see you what what would you offer them what do you do so it's a very long list okay. it's much easier if we can take it back a step mm -hmm. let me sort of talk you through my diagnostic process okay because once we have a diagnosis and, and i don't mean just like a generic diagnosis like endometriosis i mean actual impairments how that endometriosis is affecting the patient's body then we focus in on those specific items and they will have their own treatment course. Okay. So I can give you a laundry list of procedures I do, but mm -hmm. it's not, not as meaningful as is thinking about how and why something is hurting and then coming up with the treatment for that. Right. At the core, whenever we can treat the cause, we want to treat the cause, we want to heal the body because then the pain will stop, except when it doesn't. And that's when you, you, know, you work with, uh, like the social worker you had on a few weeks ago who mm -hmm. talked about the mind-body connection. Right, right, Nicole. Uh, but the first step is always to address the anatomic source. So that's where it comes down to actual physical anatomical diagnosis. So let's say someone comes in with pelvic pain. There's a lot of things that go on with pelvic pain. Mm -hmm. How much are the hips contributing? How much is the low back contributing? How much are muscles around the pelvis contributing? We want to identify and tease out as much of that as possible. Uh, if there's endometriosis, if there's adenomyosis, if there are fibroids, if it's vulvodynia, 
we want to try and isolate structurally where these different pains and sensations are coming from. First of all, identify the primary source of the pain and then see if there's anything secondary that's occurring because of this. So I'll give you a good example. With hip joint pain, uh, there will often be muscle pain in the adductor, in the hip flexors, uh, sometimes in the piriformis. Sometimes when the piriformis is tight, it'll pull on the sciatic nerve and mimic a sciatica, even though there's nothing coming from the low back. Uh, and similarly, the hip can also pull on the obturator internus, which then pulls on the pudendal nerve, which then causes pelvic pain. That was my, I think, a large part of my problem. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so there's, there's a lot of cascading effects mm -hmm. from different anatomic structures. So my first goal is to sort of get your story or get the patient's story and try and piece together what we think the primary issue is. We'll confirm that with physical examination, with different diagnostic studies, with imaging. Sometimes we'll do diagnostic injections to see where the source of pain is. And as we sort of untie this big knot, we'll learn what's doing what's doing what, and then we can sort of focus on what we need to treat. Once we know what we need to treat, there's typically a, a pathway that we go down. Um, so if we take an example, if we just look at endometriosis as an isolated example, which is uncommon, right? So many patients don't come to me immediately with endometriosis because that's that's not what I treat primarily, right? right? So, I mean, I'm a pain management doctor. You would go to a gynecologist who specializes in endometriosis, mm -hmm. right? You would talk about medication options and surgical options, and you might do some other treatments for the pain, but you would only come to me after those have failed, typically. Right. And at that point, I'm trying to decide how much of this is actual endo that's left over, how much is injury from the surgery that was done, how much is endo that was on nerves or other structures that is now removed, but because of its presence there and because of the surgery to remove it, there was uh, an injury to those other tissues, which is now registering as pain. So even endo by itself is not super straightforward. Um, we're trying to, to tease these apart. and. In that process, I'm trying to figure out how much is just a primary nociceptive pain, meaning pain registering in the structure because of the injury that was there, and how much is a secondary process. Mm -hmm. And with the secondary process, it can be centralization of the pain. So when there's acute pain, typically it's felt as you know sharp, stabbing, aching throughout, it's, and it's a more focal kind of pain. When it becomes chronic, the brain starts to reprogram itself because it's been there a while, it starts to take up places in the brain that, that it didn't before. Uh, that development from acute pain to chronic pain involves the process of, of centralization. And that process of centralization can actually occur a few different ways. It can occur with the sympathetic nervous system. The sympathetic nervous system is your fight or flight response. It's what causes a lot of panic. It's involved in migraines. Uh, it's also involved in controlling bowel and bladder function and it provides all sensation to the viscera and the pelvis. So of course, if there's pain in the uterus, it's sensed via the sympathetic nervous system in part. Mm -hmm. Anytime there's irritation of a structure innervated by the sympathetic nervous system, it can trigger a sympathetic reactive response. And so you can get centralization of the sympathetic nervous system, the sympathetic nervous system gets wound up, and then that will cause a lot of other symptoms. And that's when you can get the hot, cold, clammy, unusual sweating response, hypersensitivity, which we call allodynia or hyperesthesia is an increased pain response. Uh, other reflexes can be increased. You can have difficulty urinating. You can have constipation. Or on the other end of it, you can have diarrhea. 
people respond differently. Mm. So is the sympathetic nervous system involved? We try and figure that out because if it is, then there are specific treatments that we go down for that, both medication and procedural. Mm -hmm. If it's not, then we focus on the somatic nerves, which are the regular spinal nerves that come out. And we see, can we block those to stop pain? If there is centralization occurring there, is it in the dorsal root ganglion further up closer to the spine or has it moved further on up in the nervous system? So the treatments we offer depend on where we think the pain is registering and is the pain just centralized at this point or is there still a peripheral trigger? So that's another thing we have to figure out. Okay. Can you explain what neuropathic pain is? Sure. So so pain... Because I think that it's very common in, in women and men with pelvic pain. Yeah. They probably all have some form of neuropathic pain. Right. So neuropathic pain is pain that registers from nerve injury, essentially. Although one can argue with any type of pain, it's being transmitted by the nerves anyway. Mm-hmm. And most pain results from an injury of some nature. So let's say you know you fall down and you scrape your knee there's some nerve in the skin that's irritated or injured from that even minute injury it's that nerve injury that's triggering the pain mm-hmm. right so that could be construed as neuropathic pain but usually we, we don't think of it that superficially we think of neuropathic pain as being pain from a more severe nerve injury that's taken on these qualities where there's maybe some like pins and needles or itching burning kind of sensation and and usually there's some hypersensitivity and things like that involved uh, it's not a clear designation of a pain type uh, we talk about it because it can have some utility but when it comes down to treatment there there are not clear borders there's lots of shading between right. different categories of pain and the other two categories we typically use are somatic and visceral so somatic pain is typically what you would think of you know it, it's it's bone muscle joint soft tissue like you know like again if you scratch your knee scrape your knee you're going to think that's somatic pain it's just the peripheral injury and that's what you're feeling uh, visceral pain is more the internal organs so your lung your kidneys uh, the, the pelvis you know the the uterus things like that that's visceral pain, which is typically innervated by the sympathetic nervous system. So it, it's sensed a bit differently. And neuropathic pain can result from injury to either the somatic part or the visceral part. And it sort of just takes time. But when you say injury, you don't necessarily mean like a phys- like a fall or... Anything that's disrupting the normal physiologic right. state. So an injury could be chronic UTIs that's an injury to the yeah, bladder right? absolutely okay. there's irritation which is going to cause some injury cause some scarring right, right? Uh, yeah I, I mean injury just is, is, a, is an irritation to right a, right okay and so when when patients have neuropathic pain they they have other forms of, of pain as well going on in their body but what are some of the treatments that you use for that for neuropathic pain. Let's say in someone with pelvic pain or vulvodynia. Let's take vulvodynia for an example. Perfect. Okay. <laughs> All right. So right. So this is where it's tricky. And again, with the vulvodynia, there can be actual some peripheral injury, right? It could have been a stretch injury. It could have been a UTI that caused, uh, if it really spread and, and the tissue there got infected mm-hmm. or if there was an abscess really bad, right? Um, then it can actual, actually injure those nerves there. and. and Again, just causing some disruption to the normal function of those nerves. If there is a peripheral ongoing irritation to the tissue, 
then that really has to be treated. And that's kind of a somatic thing. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of something we would treat peripherally. We wouldn't necessarily treat that as neuropathic pain. But if as a result from that, you're, you're getting you know cramping, spasms in the pelvis, burning around the rectum, other numbness tingling in the area, or if it's cold and clammy or hot and sweaty, then that's a neuropathic pain mm -hmm. type of picture, right? That's a sympathetic nervous system involvement type of picture. So we talk about medications that calm the nerves down. Common medications for that, things like gabapentin, um, which is one of the anti-seizure medicines we mm -hmm. use for pain. You can use a broad, there's a wide variety of anti-seizure medicines that we use for neuropathic pain, uh, but that's probably one of the more common. Cymbalta, um, that's another one. Right, right. Cymbalta uh -huh. is an antidepressant. Uh, Cymbalta, amitriptyline, nortriptyline, uh, Effexor, venlafaxine, mm -hmm. doxepin. These are all antidepressants so how that do we you use for choose, pain. And this is actually a question I have for like any doctor that prescribes these medicines. How do you choose which medication to prescribe to a patient? So I try and take the whole patient into right. account here. If there's death... In terms of like these antidepressants. Right. Yeah. So, so each medication has its own side effects and mm -hmm. you have to use it different ways and there's different times for onset of action. And you kind of think about all of that and you think about is the patient also depressed? Like do we actually want to treat depression at the mm. same time? Um, you think, are they also having trouble sleeping because some are better for sleep than others? Right. Uh, are you worried about sexual dysfunction because some of these will cause sexual dysfunction more than others? Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of consideration to take into it, right? So if you come and you tell me you're having a lot of burning pain and you're having trouble sleeping, then we may just start with something like amitriptyline, which is an old school antidepressant. Used at a low dose, it doesn't really help with depression so much, but it will help you sleep and it really helps with burning pain. Mm -hmm. Now, amitriptyline, it doesn't work immediately. You have to take it for a few weeks, you know, two to four weeks, it'll start to have an effect. Right. And then we have to kind of build the dose up as you tolerate it. So it's a little bit of an investment and side effects causes drowsiness, some dry mouth, um, but that, that's usually about it. It's usually mm -hmm. well tolerated, but you know, over 65, it's not recommended. So it's really for younger patients. Uh, it really depends on the flavor and, and the whole picture. Mm -hmm. And so another treatment that I want you to discuss is ketamine treatments, which you use in your practice. And I have not spoken to any other physician on my podcast, at least who does uses yeah. ketamine treatment in their practice. So just to set up a framework for treatment planning, mm -hmm. uh, we, we sort of divide it in terms of medication treatments, right. procedural treatments, um, physical modalities, and then psychology treatments for okay. pain. Um, so the medication treatments, there's oral medications, um, which are things like the gabapentin or the, like, the anti-seizures, the antidepressants. You can use anti-inflammatories. Um, sometimes we'll use muscle relaxers. Mm -hmm. Sometimes we'll use other medications that are for blood pressure uh, that can help with pain in this area. Um, those can be oral, they can be topical, or they can be infused. Mm -hmm. So similarly, uh, the ketamine can also be used as a topical. It's not super effective as a topical according to the studies we have, but of course everyone responds differently. Some people do very well with topical. Right. Um, the infusion is helpful if there's a lot of sensitization or a lot of severe pain that's just not getting better. So the analogy I use when we're talking about ketamine to, to consider ketamine, imagine there's a fire and the flames are just so big you can't actually see what's burning. That's when the ketamine can be helpful. Mm. It's really good to get you out of crisis because okay. if everything is just super ramped up, everything's super sensitive and you're just not in a good place, the ketamine is great for some people. It doesn't mm. work for everybody. Mm -hmm. Um, 
the way we do ketamine or the way I do ketamine, uh, I will do it in a facility so that you're monitored. Uh, you do you don't do it in here. I don't do it okay. in the office setting. Some people do do it in office setting. Um, in New York, you're actually supposed to be doing it in a facility because it's still an anesthetic agent. So, uh, like a like surgery, a hospital. It doesn't have to be oh. a hospital. It can be an outpatient surgical facility, oh, okay. or it can be an outpatient office that is accredited for anesthesia. Okay. So there are certain criteria that the facility has to meet to uh, meet New York State guidelines to be right. accredited for anesthesia delivery. And even though we're giving sub-anesthetic doses, it's still considered an anesthetic agent. So. The, the facility does need to be accredited. Anyway, uh, <laughs> we start in this facility. So there's monitoring. So there, there are little patches placed on your chest so that we can watch your heart rhythm. We check your blood pressure, check your, your pulse, all that good stuff. Make sure your body's responding well to the medication. I start by giving a low-dose IV push to see what type of response there is. So what can happen? Typically with ketamine, and this is a conversation we'll have, we'll go, we'll have before we go in and do it, uh, it causes dissociation, which means the patient can have an out-of-body experience. Some people see this as Alice in Wonderland. Things are super colorful. There can be like a kaleidoscope vision. Other people have like a complete out-of-body experience. Some people feel like they're dying. And it's important to have this conversation before we go into it because you, you want them to sort of know in the back of the head, oh, this is just the ketamine. I'm not actually dying because otherwise that can be quite frightening. Mm -hmm. So... Um, Ketamine also stimulates the sympathetic nervous system a little bit, so blood pressure can go up. Uh, there can be almost a little bit of a panic response, so that's the other reason we do the monitoring. If the blood pressure does go up, we give medication to treat that. Mm -hmm. uh, if it does cause a bad dissociative effect, we can give medication to counteract that, or we can also wait for it to wear off because it wears off very quickly, and usually by the time we give you medication to counteract it, it will have worn off anyway. Interesting. And how long are patients in this state for? So this is one thing that's highly variable, and it's not studied well enough. There mm -hmm. are not clear protocols for ketamine for chronic pain. Um, there are many different ways that it's done. Just looking at it for chronic pain, um, typically infusions run for an, anywhere from an hour to days, right? And it's not feasible for most people. Uh, ketamine's also been used more recently for depression, mm -hmm. and depression... Thankfully, it is well studied with dosing, and there's some consistency. So uh, there's a protocol that's established where we do half a milligram per kilogram over 45 min minutes, and that's typically done weekly for eight weeks. So because in the pain world, there's not a lot of consistency in dosing and timing and all of that, I've started with the antidepressant treatment because invariably there is some component of adjustment or depression that comes with chronic pain. And, and right. so... I mean, if anything, we're looking for some dual benefit. So we'll start with a little bit. It's usually a 10 milligram IV push and just see what response there is. If the patient tolerates it well, then we would go ahead with the, uh, the half milligram per kilogram over 45 minute infusion and see how they do. I don't tend to do set protocols immediately for everyone from the start. I'll see how they respond to the initial treatment, talk to them about their experience, and based on that, we'll adjust it. So some patients will want a lower dose some patients will need a little bit more. Some people metabolize drugs better than others. And so some patients, when we give them that 10 milligram push, they feel absolutely nothing. Mm. If they feel nothing, I'll give them another 10 mm -hmm. and I'll see how they feel then. We'll sort of gauge what dose they need to have an effect. And by an effect, I'm looking for analgesia, pain relief, as well as gauging their dissociative effect. How out of it are they, right? Mm -hmm. 
uh, one question I'm asking with these pushes is, can I give them a dose to use at home? Uh, with pelvic pain, we'll often use ketamine in a topical cream or in a suppository. Mm. Uh, we'll also use a nasal spray or a sublingual pill, um, which we can use for you know, pain diffusely. I want to know, is there a dose that I can safely give them where their blood pressure won't elevate, where they won't be out of it, but they do get pain relief? Mm-hmm. So if we can find that dose... This is so interesting. If we can find that dose, hurrah, right? We have right. another treatment option. Right. Really, like all throughout the process, through the diagnostic and the treatment process, we're learning things about the patient's body. Mm-hmm. We're learning what they respond to, what they don't respond to, what makes them better, what makes them worse. That gives us more insight into what really the core issues are and what is triggering what in that cascade. So, for example, if I find they do well with lidocaine, lidocaine is another medication we'll use as an IV push or as an infusion. It's a local anesthetic. We can use it topically. There is a pill version, not exactly lidocaine, but a similar medication that we can use, or we can do IV pushes and infusions. Mm -hmm. And if they respond well to it, great. It's another treatment option. So based on the response the patient has to each of these medications, they'll sort of know when it's a good time to use that. So for example, migraine. I have a lot of patients with migraine who respond very well to IV lidocaine, magnesium, Toradol, like a a nice Mm -hmm. little cocktail. And if they get a migraine that's not going away on its own, it's not going away with the medications they have at home, then they'll come in, we'll do a quick little push and we'll block it. So we kind of learn what works for each patient. Same thing, if if there's a pelvic pain flare and it's just not going away with normal treatment and they know they do well with the ketamine infusion, they'll come in, we'll do an infusion and it'll sort of reset things. And then they'll go back to their PT and their normal routine. So you're using the ketamine with patients who have pelvic pain yes. and you're seeing it work. Yes. So interesting. Yeah. Wow. And like, what are these patients who have pelvic pain? Are they in like what level of pain? One to 10? Like, is it 10 out of 10 pain or is it? So the, 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 the scale of pain, it's of course very subjective and every right. patient has their own meaning for, for mm-hmm. what nine and 10 is right <clears throat> typically to warrant something like this mm-hmm. they're in significant pain enough pain that it limits their function mm-hmm. it limits their ability to go to work it limits their sex life it mm-hmm. limits their uh, emotional range right so when pain gets to this level we need to do something like it, yeah. it's incumbent on me to do something for them right. that's what they're here for and that's what i do right. so Again, if we go back to the knee scrape, we're not going to give you ketamine for a knee scrape, right? Uh, If you have a a very mild case of vulvodynia and it just flares up every so often, ketamine is probably not the best option for you, right? Like there are side effects with all of these treatments. They're not to be done lightly. Mm -hmm. Um, They really, it requires due consideration. Mm -hmm. And when there is a significant amount of pain and more standard treatments have failed, that's what we... It's an option we can reach for. Mm -hmm. Other things we consider at this level are sympathetic nerve blocks, right? So we mentioned how the sympathetic nervous system is what controls sensation to that area. It can get flared up. When it's flared up, I can put local anesthetic on those nerves directly and reset them. And typically when the, the pain is sort of registering in the sympathetic nervous system and it's wound up and we reset it, that pain relief lasts longer than the duration of the local anesthetic, right? which can be, you know, weeks or months. And typically when that happens, we can even do a series of those and sort of keep it reset. And and so by keeping the sympathetic nervous system at bay, 
it, it sort of calms those flames of the fire down again so we can really focus in on the embers and what's actually burning, what's the actual anatomic issue that's still triggering pain so we can hone in on that and treat that. Mm-hmm. That's, that's really the goal. Again, we want to find an anatomic treatment. And if you had endometriosis and you had surgery for it, but you're still having sick pain with your cycle and it's flaring up every cycle and it gets out of control and then it calms down a little bit after your cycle, we still need to figure out what's causing that, right? right? There, there's still some tissue that's flaring with your cycle. What is that? And, it, and when during that period where it is flaring, if it's flaring and it's so severe, we can't actually identify what is flaring. That's when things like the sympathetic nerve block will take the sympathetics out of the question. So then it leaves the somatic nerves, which are the nerves that are coming from the spinal cord and go directly down into that area, which could go to the you know ilioinguinal, iliohepagastric, the genitofemoral, or the pudendal nerves. Uh, we can then isolate and block those and try and tease those out and find the exact distribution of the pain. Once we know the exact distribution, we know what structures are in that area. So we can then focus in on those structures. Mm-hmm. And say, for example, they left the round ligament after the endometriosis surgery, and we need to go in and take out the round ligament. That's an option. If there's just irritation to the peritoneum, meaning that there was endo on the lining of the viscera inside the belly, and it caused scarring and irritation, and the nerves got scarred in, and there's scar tissue there that's really still inflamed, and that's what's causing the irritation, that's not so easy to treat. Mm -hmm. So then we may focus on treatments to actually address the nerves. I mean, we can surgically go in and remove the nerves, but of course that has side effects. There are other things I can do to nerves to stop the pain from those nerves. or we use medication to kind of calm the nerves down. And so depending on what's going on and the level of intensity and how how possible it is for actually to treat the anatomic source, we try and do that. But whenever we can't, that's when we rely more on things like the ketamine. Mm-hmm. So often by the time we get to ketamine, patients have already been through opioids right. and other things which have more side effects. And I don't know if you know this, opioids actually make pain worse. Yeah, I did know that. So Do you want to talk about... Well, I actually I have a question I want to ask you about ketamine and then... I want you to explain why opioids make pain worse. Okay. Can make pain worse. Sure. So the question, that, I'm just curious, when patients are are coming to you and, and you have agreed that ketamine infusions might be a good treatment option, are these patients in so much pain that they are like, great, let me do it. Like, I want to do this. You know, not really like, thinking much about it, not that that's a bad thing, or are they scared and nervous and afraid of like what could happen if they get ketamine infusion? You know what I mean? Because right. I, I mean, from my experience, like I know that there have been times, luckily I'm not really in pain anymore, but there are times when you're in so much pain that you don't care. Like you're desperate. You'll do anything. If someone, if you're, if you can't get out of bed and, and a doctor says, I'll, I can give you ketamine infusions and it will make you feel better. I don't even think I would be scared. I would say, great, I'll go do it. And I wouldn't think twice about it. But I'm curious if there are patients who also like want to do it, but are hesitant and scared because they don't know what it will feel like. So this is part of the process of, of adapting to having chronic pain. And mm-hmm. patients fall on the spectrum. Mm-hmm. Some patients are, are like you're, you're telling where they're just so desperate they will try anything. Right. And, you know, I, I, I don't care. I'll try anything. Just give it to me. Often those patients, after having tried a number of things, come to a point where they realize that's not necessarily the best approach to take, Mm -hmm. and and they will be more thoughtful in the process. And usually at that point, they've been living with this pain long enough that 
you know, it, it's part of them and they acknowledge it and, and they sort of can think critically about what might be helpful or what might not be helpful. And so they want more information and they right. want to make a good guided decision. And beyond that, they want to know what it means if it helps, what it means if it doesn't help, mm-hmm. and then what the next step would be, right? So uh, there, there's a point of desperation where patients will try anything, but then there's also on the complete opposite, a point of desperation where they're so afraid of anything, of anything, right. where will it make it worse? Will it not make it, will it not help? What if it doesn't help? Then what? There's a hypervigilance mm-hmm. that it comes on that side. And, and I, my opinion is that that's part of the sympathetic nervous system making its way to the brain. Uh, a lot of that anxiety and control that it really hypervigilance is the best word because you're very much hyper-focused on the pain and trying to get rid of the pain it's really difficult to think through things and it's really difficult to trust your gut in that state just because you're so hyper-focused mm-hmm. uh, so people fall on the spectrum so it's always it's always a conversation i can't say that I ever say, let me give you ketamine, it will make you better. Right. Uh, there, I, there's a few times. I, yeah. um, l- let's go to an easier example, right? So like you see a patient with hip arthritis and you know they have x-rays and there's really bad arthritis and you see them move and you examine their hip. Yes, you have really bad hip arthritis. The pain you're telling me about is very consistent with hip arthritis. We can do a steroid injection. We can talk about surgery. Like, like these are the options, right? Like surgery will take care of this because this is hip arthritis. Right. Like it's pretty cut and dry. Um, with migraines, right? I can say, you know, Botox is fantastic. Like by and large, almost everyone responds to Botox for migraine. Like, and there's really no significant side effect. Like Botox will most likely help you. It's definitely worth trying, right? Mm-hmm. Things like ketamine, it's more on the fringe, right? It's not standard practice like these other things. Um, there are not guidelines for treatment for sub-anesthetic ketamine, which is what we're doing. There are guidelines for anesthetic dosing of ketamine, but not for sub-anesthetic dosing. Mm. So whenever we're on the fringe of medicine, it really requires a lot of consideration. So the patient has to fully understand what ketamine is and how it works and what the side effects might be, how it might help them, how it might flare things, and it's a conversation. So we try and have that conversation mm-hmm. just like you and I are having right now. Like this is why office visits for these things right. take longer, right? So so we really want to make sure we consider all the options and, and, and talk it through and answer questions. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Thank you for explaining that. And okay, so the other question that, that we were going to talk about is why opioids? Well, I guess you could talk a little bit about the use of opioids briefly for chronic pain and why they actually in the long term can make the pain worse. Right. So opioids block pain Mm -hmm. at the spinal cord, right where the peripheral nerve synapses with the spinal cord. So they basically block that signal from from coming up. Right. And it's great for acute pain. Mm -hmm. So you have surgery, you're recovering from surgery. You know, we, we don't recommend it so much for like wisdom tooth extractions anymore, but you know, serious surgery let's just say you you had some of your colon removed or let's just say you had your endometriosis surgery and you're recovering and it's painful opioids are appropriate you know for two weeks after surgery opioids are absolutely appropriate after that we expect the body to sort of you know be sore and you will feel healing that's part of the healing process you want to be in tune with your body you want to feel what your body is going through and you want to keep moving and do the therapy and everything that you need to recover after the surgery 
but there's a point where opioids, you know, they cause constipation, they cause nausea, they interrupt with your sleep, they affect your mood, and they will sensitize your nervous system so that pain is actually perceived as being more intense. So interesting. So this happened to my grandma because she she had vulvodynia and IC and uh, lots of issues, but she became addicted to painkillers and then her pain was just so bad that she would take infinite amounts of painkillers and they wouldn't work. Yeah, I mean, addiction is one thing. Right, right. Dependence is another, which we see often. Dependence is when you've been using this medication for a long time and your body is used to it. Mm. And if you stop using it, your body will be very uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. You, know, you will have withdrawal. Uh, and it's not just about treating the pain. Um, it, it's completely separate from that. So okay. the, the most difficult conversation I have with patients is explaining to them that opioids are not helping the pain. And by taking the opioids away and getting them off of them, once their body gets used to being off of them, which takes you know at least two or four weeks after you're off of them, you will actually have less pain. The problem is getting there. Right. And the problem is the fear of the process. And the problem is the fear of living without the opioid because that's all they know, right? And even with the opioid, they're not comfortable. That's why they're coming to see me. They're still having pain. If they were perfectly comfortable, they wouldn't need to come and see me, mm-hmm. right? Uh, so that's a difficult conversation. And often these same patients find some emotional comfort in the opioid. Mm-hmm. And this is a separate conversation where we'll say, right, the opioid does something for the pain. You know what it does for the pain. More likely than not, it's also having other effects. And those other effects may be beneficial. Opioids are antidepressants. They will make you feel better, right? They will give you elation. Uh, and even if they don't anymore because you've been on them for so long, there, there, there's still some you know, fear that if you stop it, Right. It's gonna it's yeah. gonna come back. Right. And then what then what happens, right? So it's it's a lot to talk about. Mm-hmm. And I mean, the, the the truth is coming off patients will be better, but getting there is a journey. And it's a tough journey. Mm-hmm. And what is the difference between the way that your body responds and reacts to not opioids but like Ativan, Valium, Clonopin, do they have the same effect long term with chronic pain? No. Uh huh. But it's not a quick answer either. Because okay. like different classes of, of medications. So so the benzodiazepines, mm-hmm. which are like your Ativan, Clonopin, Valium, things like that. Uh, your body will also develop tolerance to those, meaning you'll get the body will get used to them. The body will re- require higher and higher doses the longer that the patient's on them. Uh, and similarly, the effect will wane. Your body basically adjusts. I mean, this is what neuroplasticity is. Just like your body adjusts to the pain, your body adjusts to the medication you're using. Anything that doesn't treat the source you will get used to mm. and then you'll need something else right mm-hmm. so even things like gabapentin the body develops tolerance too so it's not it's not always a long-term treatment option mm-hmm. i mean and that's why we want to try and treat the source whenever possible mm-hmm. can you talk a little bit about hypnotherapy which i think does treat the source or sure. can treat the source so the best analogy i make for hypnotherapy is the placebo effect mm-hmm. so the placebo effect is when your body or your mind thinks that it's better, even when nothing else changes. Because don't patients see like tremendous relief from hypnotherapy sometimes? Right, right, right. right. So there, there are lots of studies for hypnosis for pain for a lot of different painful conditions. Mm-hmm. We know that going into surgery uh, for anesthesia, for example, if they have hypnosis before, they will use less anesthesia during and then need less pain medication after. Um, I think healing time after surgery was also studied, showed improvement there. 
we know that sleep quality improves, pain experience, mood, all of mm-hmm. that will improve. Uh, it's been studied, I believe, with breast cancer and survival. Um, I, I'm not an expert in hypnosis, mm-hmm. so I can't give you all of the, the details. I'm marginally familiar with it. Uh, I, I ran a small study looking at patients with chronic pain and hypnotherapy, and we saw about a 40% improvement on average, which is good, right? Any, any treatment that gives you more than 30% improvement is considered effective. Mm-hmm. We use 30% as the benchmark because that's the placebo effect, right? So Interesting. if with hypnosis you can train your mind to deactivate a pain signal or turn down the intensity of a pain signal, that's a powerful tool. You can use it as you wish, right? So a good hypnotherapist will teach you self-hypnosis, which is a technique you can use when the pain flares. You can go into that state of self-hypnosis, and you can almost use a dial to turn down the intensity of the pain. Now, the other side of hypnotherapy, which is super important, is much like what Nicole talked about, with there being an underlying fear or anger or guilt or one of those negative emotions that hasn't been processed because the emotional distress of processing it is more intense than the physical pain, then your body will prefer the physical pain. Mm -hmm. And this is another conversation I have with patients because when when something is disproportionate, when something doesn't make complete sense as just an anatomic structure causing pain as it's being presented, we'll have this conversation. And usually patients will not and and acknowledge, yes, that makes sense, right? right? Because... There are difficult emotions, and they will often not be processed. I have had patients who had severe traumatic experiences, whether it was in war or whether it was abduction and rape. And I can't begin to imagine what it's like to process that. Mm -hmm. And when it's not processed, it gets swept under the rug because you have to function. You have to live, right? So you go on and you fake it till you make it. But those things are still inside your body. And they manifest in physical symptoms. Absolutely. Right. right? So things will boil up to the surface. Like you can only contain so much. Mm -hmm. It's interesting because this is another effect that ketamine has. With the out-of-body experience, a lot of those emotions that were swept under the rug will sort of come up to the surface. That's really interesting. It's helpful because with the out-of-body experience, the patient almost has a more objective perspective on those. And it almost makes it a little easier to process. And hypnosis lets you go through a similar process. Mm-hmm. So so with hypnosis, you can acknowledge and you can recognize these things and you can label them and you can turn them into objects and you can place them in certain places. You can do a lot of imagery under hypnosis to process these emotions. Uh, you can do trauma reversals with hypnosis and kind of That's crazy. process that emotion in the safe space of hypnotherapy. So it's tremendously helpful. Mm-hmm. Another question I just thought of that I want to ask you quickly about the ketamine treatment is, have you ever seen patients who have serious adverse reactions to it? So the, the most common adverse reactions that are serious are high blood pressure mm-hmm. or uh, bladder irritation. The bladder irritation is important if there's pelvic pain already. Right. If they have some interstitial cystitis, it could probably make it worse. Really? Yeah. Why Temporarily. Uh, it's, it's just one of those side effects of the medication. It, oh. just, it tends to irritate the bladder. Doesn't do it for everybody. I've had a couple patients have that response. It's not a long-term effect, uh, but right. you know that day or the next day, they might be urinating more frequently. They mm-hmm. might have a little irritation in the bladder. Interesting. Um, so a question that a listener had for you, which relates to opioid use, is are opioids 
an appropriate treatment for someone with endometriosis who has chronic pain. It wasn't opioids, sorry. It was muscle relaxers. Oh, sure, sure, sure. Mm -hmm. So muscle relaxers, it's a broad category of medications. So tizanidine, methocarbamol or robaxin, baclofen, scalaxin, flexoril or cyclobenzaprine, valium, these are all considered muscle relaxers, mm -hmm. but they all work by different mechanisms. So the important thing to consider is what actually is causing the pain, right? If they're having pelvic floor spasms and you're treating that spasm with a muscle relaxer, that kind of intuitively makes sense. But even then, you might want to think about why that spasm is occurring, right? If it's a pain reflex, then you might think about something like baclofen or tizanidine. They both sort of block reflexive spasms mm -hmm. in the spinal cord, and they can be helpful. Um, something like flexoril or cyclobenzaprine, it's more centrally acting more on the brain, right? So it has more of a calming, sedating effect. It's almost like a tricyclic, like amitriptyline or nortriptyline. Uh, my point is, all of they, they all work by different receptors. They all work slightly differently. So can it be helpful for neuropathic pain? Absolutely. I use tizanidine frequently for neuropathic pain because it's also a sympathetic nervous system blocker. Mm -hmm. It's an alpha-2 agonist, which blocks the sympathetic nervous system, much like clonidine does. Uh, so it can be very helpful for, for burning pain. I use it for complex regional pain syndrome because it will block the sympathetic nervous system. That's so interesting. The sympathetic nervous system is fight or flight. Yes. Okay. And the parasympathetic is obviously the opposite. Yes. Okay. Just making, just clarifying that. Um, so that in short, the answer would be that that muscle relaxers would be an appropriate they, they, treatment. They can absolutely be uh -huh. appropriate. Short term. Even long term. Uh -huh. So there, there's a lot of, I mean, professionally, yeah. people discuss, are muscle relaxers appropriate long term? Right. Are you using them all day, every day for the rest of your life? No. Right. Are you using them sort of as needed, a couple of days a week or when you get a flare? Or are you using them all day, every day for a short period? Fine. Mm -hmm. No issue. Mm -hmm. Right. And then it's a question of which muscle relaxer, right? So like Valium, definitely not. Valium will lose its effect and it has other side effects. It's not good. But Tizanidine, there's, there's no demonstrated harm of long-term use of Tizanidine. Or Baclofen, patients who have stroke or spinal cord injury, they're on Baclofen for the rest of their lives. Right. right? There's no demonstrated long-term harm uh, from appropriate use of these medications. Cool. Thank you. Yeah. And my last question is if you had to leave everyone listening with one piece of advice as a pain management specialist um something that you know could benefit people who are in chronic pain what what would you say i think the biggest thing is how one perceives their own body mm -hmm. their own pain their place in life and their goals for life and it really goes back to the psychology of pain because how, how you see this process and this stage in life and how you process and how you plan, it really has a lot, it, it strongly affects your outcome. So there's pain, pain sucks completely. There's no arguing with that. Is it fair? It's definitely not fair. Is there room for anger? Absolutely. Be angry, process that anger, mm -hmm. but try and think discreetly what you can do for yourself, for your body, to take control. And some people take this to the extreme and they want to micromanage every little thing. That doesn't help. But just having sort of a big picture plan, like knowing that things will be okay, mm -hmm. even if the pain doesn't get better. 
there's something to be said for sort of accepting things as they are in the moment. There's a, I'm sorry, I'm going to go off on a tangent no, a little no, bit here because okay. there's there's a lot to talk about. And I'm trying to encapsulate it and I can't really do it justice mm-hmm. because when when there's pain that develops and especially with pelvic pain, something that's so intimate and part of your identity and part of your, your function and your ability to have relationships and all of this, even though people can't see it on the outside and probably especially because people can't see it on the outside, it really has a strong emotional impact and there's an urgency there's a desperation to get it gone and just to get back to how things were but things may not get back to how they were and even if they do you're still a person who's gone through this journey and that means something and there's going to be a fear that it may come back someday and you have to be ready for that so feeling like you're in a hole trying to climb out furiously trying to climb out or like you're running a race and you see the finish line but it's not getting any closer and you just keep struggling that is not therapeutic that is something to be dealt with because that will make you crazy and that will it just it doesn't help Mm. so so accepting yes there's that finish line there and i'm not getting any closer and yes this totally sucks and yes i'm totally angry but here's what i'm doing about it right i'm i'm working with this doctor i'm working with that therapist we've identified at the moment that this is clearly an issue we know we can do these things about it we're going to do these things and i'm working with this person on that and even in spite of all of this i still have my life and there are still things i'm doing with my life i may have to adjust some of those goals but i'm going to adjust some of those goals and i'm going to come to terms with that and i'm going to keep living because you know what else am i going to do right uh it's interesting because i haven't met a lot of suicidal patients with uh chronic pelvic pain Mm -hmm. And, and and you might think that there would be a lot because it's so intense but it comes down to this sort of having a vision for yourself, having a vision for your life, accepting that there is pain. Pain is a sensation. Making it into more than a sensation is when we run into trouble. So interesting. Uh, Allowing that sympathetic nervous system to take over and allow panic, it's not helpful. And sure, easier said than done, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, There are even things I can do with medicines to help block that sympathetic causing panic. Like we'll even do stellate ganglion blocks, which are nerve blocks in the neck that block the sympathetic flow to the brain, which will cause a lot of this anxiety. So we can block some of that uh, even with local anesthetic. Um, But yes, so if I'm to encapsulate all of this, um, take a look at who you are as a person and try and see yourself as a whole person as you are with pain as part of that whole person that is an, you know, even though an undesirable feeling, it's part of who you are. And you accept that and you're going to build your life with that as part of you for this moment. And it relates, what you just explained relates closely to what Nicole Sachs talks a lot about and talked about on our podcast episode a few weeks ago, but she was saying that the more you try and resist the pain, the worse the pain gets. Yeah, it, it feeds into that sympathetic right, response. Exactly. And it's just that panic, that trying to dig yourself out of a hole, trying to run and finish that last bit of the race mm-hmm. that you if you could have done it you would have done it right. you wouldn't be here right, right now right like yeah if there were a quick and easy fix it would have been done mm-hmm. and she explained really well like if you can just if you wake up one morning and you have a flare or you don't feel well or your bladder is bothering you or your vulvodynia is bad and you just say to yourself okay today's gonna be a pain day it's as simple as just saying that and like telling your body okay like 
this is going to be okay and tomorrow I'll wake up and I probably won't be in this much pain tomorrow because tomorrow's a different day tomorrow's a new day and maybe maybe you will but maybe you won't the first step is just telling yourself like okay yeah. I'm gonna be okay my body can handle this right and yeah this is going to sound very uncaring yeah but when you're at that stage you don't care about the pain right it's just a sensation it's right. another sensation right. like a foul smell mm-hmm. you just don't care mm-hmm. you're living your life you're doing what you have to do you're being yourself right and yeah it's a sensation but it's difficult to get there yeah it's really difficult right thank you this was really interesting and and I think that everyone listening will benefit from, I know that everyone listening will benefit from this. Greatly. And if there's so, any more questions, I'm yeah. happy to Where to can everyone contact you? Well, if they want to reach me directly, mm-hmm. uh, my website is manhattanpainmedicine.com. Our email is on there. Uh, my email is jws at manhattanpainmedicine.com. Uh, or if they want to reach out to you, I'm happy to be in conversation with you further. Thank you again for tuning into this episode. I hope you found all of the information that Dr. Seferman shared as interesting as I did. If you could please take two minutes to go to the iTunes podcast app and leave a rating and a review, we would so greatly appreciate it. And if you want to get in contact with The Beehive, you can email us at info at You can also follow us on Instagram at The Beehive with an underscore at the end. And you can go to our website as well, www.thebeehive.com. This podcast is for education purposes only. It does not constitute the practice of medicine, nursing, or other healthcare professional services, including the giving of medical advice. During the episodes, no doctor-patient relationship is formed. The content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Listeners should seek the assistance of their healthcare provider for any concerns or questions they have.